0: And my prayer would be that we have open hearts and minds to to see what He would have us learn over the next couple of months. Uh, before we get go any further, I'm gonna um, ask uh, Carl to open us in prayer.
1: Let's pray, Father. We just thank you and we praise you, Lord, for all that you are and all that you do for us. Lord, we especially thank you tonight for this opportunity to gather so freely and to study your Word. We thank you, Lord, for Jenny's willingness to, to use her knowledge to lift our Lift us in in the knowledge of you. Be with her now as she brings this lesson and on on for the coming weeks. Be with us so that they may touch our hearts. We can take that through our lives in the coming weeks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So a
0: couple of housekeeping things before we get started. Hopefully everyone got a stack of notes and um, it's probably easiest when it's that big not to do the staple, but to put it in some sort of three ring binder. So I asked Melissa to punch the holes. And if you forget, no worries. I've got extras. So if you forget it from week to week, but if you can try to remember to bring it, that'll make it a little bit easier. Sometimes as we go through, I may uh, have another little extra handout to kind of insert in that night's lesson, but this time I tried to, some of the things I did that with last time, I tried to go ahead and put them in your notes this time, so y'all have the benefit of me be doing it last fall. Um, so a couple of things, um, if you, as we go through, if you have questions, comments, you'd like to to offer some input. Please flag me down. I tend to talk quickly. A lot of people would never know I'm from Dallas, Texas. Um, but I get excited sometimes about things that we're talking about and I'm just steamrolling along and someone has some great insight or something they'd like to add. And so please, you know, wave me down, hey Jenny, whatever, because I don't wanna I don't want to keep going and, and have you lose that thought that could have really contributed to our discussion. So let me know if you have comments, questions, input. Secondly, we're going to read a lot of scripture together this this next couple of months, and I try to break it up in little pieces, but I feel like people get tired of hearing my voice the entire time, so I ask folks to read if they're willing to. So rather than waiting for someone to look up the passage, call on them, they might not be ready, um, I actually pass out cards at the beginning of every class. And so if you know you don't like to read out loud, um, I should start putting a little asterisk beside them if they got a lot of hard names or something so people know, but um, I did not this time. So if you're willing to read, take a card, um, go ahead and uh, find that either in your mobile device or in your Bible, put the card in there so that when I say the reference, you'll be ready to read. That will make it go a lot faster, and some of the verses will literally be two or three lines, others are like bigger sections, that's a little bit as we get farther farther along, Um, but don't be intimidated, so um, I just think it's helpful to have um, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about actually read out loud, so... So that's what the cards are for, and then if you can remember to give them back to me, please do. If not, it's not that big a deal. So, I'm, I'm doing this, our, my little HDMI cords a little far away, so we're going to see how this works here. So, why a survey approach? Why should we study God's Word uh, in a survey format? Why do we need to kind of skim along from, from start to finish? Well, before we answer that question, I want to ask a more basic question, which is, why do we study the Bible at all? So if I asked you folks, why do we study the Bible, you all could give me a plethora of answers that would all be correct, um, that would be sound, biblical, but um, just for the sake of kind of condensing this into a little bit smaller bites, I basically chose three different passages that kind of sum up a lot of the reasons why we study God's Word. So... Hopefully I gave folks time to look up those first couple of verses. So first verse we're gonna look at first passage we're gonna look at is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17.
1: Okay. Go ahead. Ready? All scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching and keeping, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work.
0: So all scripture is inspired by God or God-breathed. And so First of all, the Bible is God's inspired message to mankind. If God took the time to prepare a message for mankind, should we not take the time to learn and study it? So it's God's inspired message to us. It teaches, reproves, corrects, and trains us in righteousness. Why? So that verse says, or that that next verse says, so that we'll be equipped to do good works, so that we can do the things that God has called us to do. And it is in doing those things that we further the kingdom of God and become more Christ-like. So one main reason why we should study God's word is it's God's message to us. It, it uh, refines us as Christians and allows us to do good works. So that's 2 Timothy. Uh, who has Joshua 1, 8?
1: Keep this book, the law, always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in. Then you will be prosperous and successful.
0: Thank you. So in this uh, in this verse here in Joshua, God is talking directly to Joshua, and he is reassuring him that he, the Lord, will be with Joshua just like he was with Moses before Joshua. Now, obviously, when, when this passage says, this book of the law, God is referring to the law of Moses. Uh, we don't just study and follow the law of Moses. But if we can take the words of God to Joshua This book of the law, being the law of Moses, should not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you will be careful to do according to all that is written in it. We can extrapolate from that, that as believers, we need to be studying the whole counsel of God's word, his entire word. We need to be reading it, studying it, meditating on it. It is only then that we can have a successful Christian life. God's word is what enables us to live the Christian life. Otherwise, we're just kind of going along doing what we think we should be doing. So, the, the uh, importance of studying, reading, meditating is vital in successfully navigating our Christian life. And based on these first two verses, I would venture to say that if a believer is not growing in their faith, they're not maturing as a believer, it very well could be that they are not going to the source. They're not going to the, to the owner's manual. So, God's Word is required reading for the Christian. So we've done. We talked about how God's Word is uh God's inspired message to us. It molds us, it shapes us and refines us as believers it when we read it, meditate, study on it, it allows us to have a successful christian life and then john twenty one twenty five who has that? I
1: have that go ahead when Peter saw him, he asked, "Lord, what about him?" And jesus answered john twenty uh, is that number john twenty one
0: twenty five yeah I have the wrong reference right now. It's not First John. It's John. Lane John. Lane John. Somebody else, somebody else pull it. Somebody else pull it out real quick, because I might have the wrong reference for you.
1: And there are also many other things which yeah. Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, excuse me, I suppose that would even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written.
0: That verse says there are also many other things which Jesus did. I love this line, which if they were written in detail, the whole world itself could not contain the books. I tend to think that everything that Jesus did is recorded for us in the four Gospels and the first part of Acts. That is not the case. Jesus did and said so much more that we are completely unaware of that you know, we'll never know all that he did for those three, three and a half years of his earthly ministry. However, what God wanted us to know about the life and the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is included in Scripture. When I study God's Word, I get to know my Savior. If I want to be more Christ-like, I have to know what Christ was like. And so the way I do that is by studying God's Word. So that's the point of this verse. By getting to know, by spending time in the Word, I get to know Him better, and then I can become more like Him. So... To summarize, we study God's word because it's his message to us, because it teaches us how to live a successful Christian life, and because by doing so, we become more like Christ as we learn to know him and love him more. But what is missing? So I would say to you that what is missing is studying the book book of the Bible as a complete Whole book, not 66 individual books that have their own themes and, and uh, messages and lessons, but one entire message from God to us, from Genesis to Revelation, that hangs together uniquely and completely. Uh, many times that I feel like is lacking in my own personal Bible study. So when I was a teenager, actually a preteen teenager, My parents, when we lived in Dallas, would take a group of teenagers to a camp in Colorado Springs called The Summit. Um, It's it's now called Summit Ministries. It's been around for 30-plus years, and it is a Christian training camp for young people before they go off to college so that they'll be able to defend their faith, have a biblical worldview before they go off to college to the secular university and forget all they've ever known about the Lord. And so every year at The Summit, kids would have different classes, and the Every day started with something called the Bible Hour, and the director, the, the founder of Summit Ministries, Dr. David Noble, would go through what I'm about to share. Now, some of this stuff that I'm going to share over the next 12 weeks are that are actually are in notes that I took when I was like 13 years old. So, clearly, I've added to that and you know improved things and refined things and expanded things over the years, um, but this is not original with me. I did not come up with this. I want to give credit where credit is due, and quite frankly... I don't even know where Dr. David Noble, I don't know if he developed it or he, you know, got it from somewhere else. But um, I love the fact that prior to this, prior to learning, to going through this highway of life that we're going to present over the next few months, I couldn't always figure out how you got from A to B in the Bible. Like, how in the world did Moses need to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt? What were they doing in Egypt to begin with? How'd they get to Egypt? And things like that would just kind of bug me as a kid. Well, obviously, I didn't have the discipline to open up the Bible and read, Um, but when I first realized, hey, it's not just these 66 individual books, and I happen to like the Psalms, or I happen to like John, or I happen to like, you know, Ruth, The whole thing fits together. That got me really excited. And I feel like there are a lot of us Christians that have grown up in church. We know the Bible stories. We know about different characters in the Bible. We know the teachings of Paul and the epistles, but we don't always see how it all fits together. So that's why I'm doing what I'm doing last (coughs) fall and again this fall. So this highway of life is a a process. It's a journey. And we're going to go through roughly 25 key people. We're going to witness, we're going to be introduced to 25 key people, witness 25 key events, and come to recognize and understand 25 key relationships. Now, I kind of fudge on the numbers, because like you'll see on my next slide, you know, the first set of people is Adam and Eve. Um, And so it's really two, not one. But the idea is one group or one set or one individual as we go through. And the, the people, the events, and the relationships all sort of hang together. So, I hope that when we're done, at the end of three months, you'll be able to do a couple of things. Understand how God's Word details the creation of the world, traces the origin of the Jewish race, proclaims God's message of salvation to man, records the birth of the church, why we're here today, and foretells of coming in times. So... In order one other word in order to accomplish what i want to do from genesis to revelation in 12 short weeks uh, we have to move kind of quickly so i may cover something one evening and you may say girl you just totally missed the boat you didn't get anything that i get out of this when i study on my own that's okay and you know you could share insights but i don't if i leave someone out a character that you really love or a passage, or even an entire book of the Bible, um, you just feel like I sort of dropped the boat on that. That's okay. It doesn't mean those things are less important. It just means that in order to include what I'm trying to include, I'm only uh, choosing stuff that shows how it all sort of fits together. Mm So, you know, if you say, man, she just missed the boat, bear with me. You can tell me about it after class, I guess. So, there's the basic idea is there's a point to what I have in here and what I don't have in here. So, I don't know why I put these silly little transitions. i got to get rid of those. So, it makes life a little easier. So, this is exactly what you have in your notes. I have gone through this thing like eight jillion times. So, hopefully there are no typos. Uh, But I'm sure as I say that, there will be some. But anyway, so we're going to get started with our first couple of um, slides. Uh, First set of key people, key events, and key relationships this week. And every slide will basically be like this. Now, there may be times when I want to expand something. So some of the slides will have maps or diagrams or little charts just to kind of drive home what it is we're trying to talk about for that evening. So the first, when you, be, when you start at the beginning, you, you start with the very first. So the very first people that we encounter, Adam and Eve. That makes a lot of sense, right? Who has Genesis 1, 26 to 27? Then God said, Let us make mankind The very beginning of that passage, then God said, Let us make man in our own in our image. This is one this is the very first reference to the Trinity. That little pronoun us is a reference to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all being involved in the creation of man and woman. So this was a joint effort. And this, um, this sort of signifies that, you know, God had created everything light and dark and, th- um, uh, things in the, you know, the celestial body, sun, moon, and stars, and separated the waters and created the dry land and plants and animals. But when he gets to man, all three of the members of the Trinity are involved, and mankind is the only thing that is mentioned specifically to be created in God's image. So this is sort of the, the God's masterpiece, really. We are, men and women, are God's masterpiece. He, he saved, really, this sounds kind of, I don't know, obnoxious, but he saved the best for last because he wanted his stamp on every man, woman, boy, and, and boy and girl uh, from this point on. So he makes man in his own image. Um, so we're going to keep going. Uh, who's got Genesis one twenty-eight to 30? Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for you to food." Oh, thank you. <laughs> Mine, my translation is with, it was so. So anyway, um, that's a yeah. great, what translation is that? Um, you know, I love that, and the, know that it's scurry along the ground, <laughs> yeah. I love that. So God has created Adam and Eve, and he doesn't just say, go have a nice life, enjoy yourself, get, you know, tan on the on the grassy bank here and, you know, have fun. He gives them a job to do. He gives them activities to be engaged in. He says to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Verse 15 of chapter 2 in Genesis, so Genesis 2.15, it's not on here. Make a note of that. Genesis 2.15 says, Then the Lord God took man, put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So God could have made the Garden of Eden self-sustaining. He could have made it so that it was on autopilot. Adam and Eve had nothing to do but just hang around and, you know, shine the fruit, take a bite, whatever, look at the animals. He gave them work to do. He wanted to train humankind in the act of and a discipline of work. And this was still the unfallen world. So my kids do not like the idea that before the fall, there was work. Um, Work is not something that came after sin entered into the world. We find that it got a lot harder after that. But work is something that God intended for us to be about in (laughs) His perfect Garden of Eden. Okay. So we have Adam and Eve. Um, We've got animals. We've got the Garden of Eden. And um, they've got a job to do. So we move, and we don't keep talking, you know, I could we could talk on and on and on about Adam and Eve. We, I could spend weeks on the creation of the world. I love the first couple of chapters of Genesis, but we're going to keep moving for the sake of, uh, of getting to our, our purpose here, which is to get all the way through. Before we go to the key events here, I need to say a word about Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. A lot of people, even believers, get a little confused, and they don't really want to study Genesis too hard, because it kind of seems like Genesis 2 might be a little different than Genesis 1. And, you know, sometimes it's easier just to kind of not look at that. Basically, Genesis 2 is an expanded, a blown-up version, or detailed account of what happened on day 6 in Genesis 1 and the first part of Genesis 2. And so it's not that, you know, wait a minute, God forgot who he created first, or he kind of got things out of order. It's just an expanded view. Have you ever seen a big map that's like a large geographical area, and it's a bird's eye view, not a lot of detail, just, you know, you get the gist. And over to the side, there might be an inset, like a smaller map, that's a blown up section of a particular town or city or a little, you know, group of roads. That's kind of what chapter 2 of Genesis is like. So, not a different story of creation, just expanded. Um, so, we're going to talk about that. So, the first key event here is the creation of Adam and Eve. So, who has Genesis two eighteen to 22?
1: And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. Whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowls of the air and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found an company for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord gave God excuse me, the Lord God had taken from man made a woman and brought her
0: unto the man. Thank you. So here is one of these areas that people get a little confused about. The beginning of Genesis, that passage, (coughs) Genesis 2, 18, it says, um, uh, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. And so it sounds like, here's Adam in the Garden of Eden. God starts creating animals and brings them. In the original language, I got a little grammar here for you. The pluperfect, Yes, uh, we can talk with our teachers in the room. I don't have got any teachers in the room. The pluperfect ver- form of the verb, to form, is what is used here. And so it's actually rendered much more accurately out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and bird of the air. So it's not saying that God's doing it right now because didn't he just tell us in chapter 1 that, or in the beginning of chapter 2 that man came after the animals? Yes. So God has already created these animals and he is bringing these animals that he has formed already to Adam. Now imagine that. What is the other time in scripture when God did a whole lot of animal bringing to somebody? When was that? The flood, right. So Noah, this is the first time in creation, since the creation of the world, that God brings a whole slew of animals to another individual. I don't know if they're lined up. I don't know if it's assembly line. But you got all these animals creeping, crawling, mooing, flying, slithering in front of Adam. And whatever it is he calls them, the scripture says that was their name my kids are like, gosh, was he that creative? I don't know how that works. <laughs> I mean, you run out of, what, a hippopotamus, I don't know. You know, you run out of names after a while, I think. But for whatever reason, God wanted Adam to name these men. I, I mean, name these animals. I personally think the reason God had him inspect and look over and name these animals was is, is told to us in the latter part of this passage when it says... Um, But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable. A cat, no. A bird, no. A snake, no. He is looking for a companion. He realizes, he sees these animals, male and female, and realizes he is alone. And he's actually looking for a companion among the animals and realizes there's no one in this crowd that's like me. I think it's so amazing that in the perfection of the Garden of Eden, God shows Adam that he has a need. He didn't even know he had a need until this event takes place. So God shows him that he has a need, so he's got to want the woman first. Um, And then he says, here we go. I'm going to perform the first surgery, recorded in Scripture, put you to sleep, take out the rib, ta-da, and he brings uh, Eve to Adam, and it's love at first sight. So I think it's amazing that God kind of created a little bit of unrest in Adam, and then immediately (laughs) Oh, Mom. And then, uh, I got the peanut gallery back there. <laughs> then immediately meets that need by creating Eve. Okay, so, the creation of Adam and Eve. So, Adam, what is Adam formed by, formed from? Do y'all remember? Where did Adam... He was formed from the... Dust.
1: The dust of the ground.
0: Eve was not... It does not say she was formed from the dust of the ground. She was formed from his rib. So, two different kind of origins. Just a little, a little Bible trivia there. Um, so, the second key event... Is the uh, fall of man? So the first one's kind of fun and exciting. Second one, not so much. So who has Genesis three six? And
1: when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit up and did eat, and gave also unto her husband
0: with her, and he did eat. So we know the story in Genesis two. Uh, 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 in Genesis chapter two, God gives Adam and Eve one single rule. All these trees, all these plants are yours for the taking, except do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One rule. So, of course, the serpent comes, tempts Eve, she succumbs to temptation, eats the the fruit from the forbidden tree, presents it to her husband, and he also eats. So, In one seemingly unimportant act, eating a piece of fruit, taking a chunk out of some piece of fruit, Adam and Eve basically condemn every person born thereafter to to come into this world with a sin nature, separated from a righteous and holy God. I think they probably had no clue of the ramifications of this one little sin, the ramifications for their own lives, and the lives of every individual that would come to be, come to live on planet Earth after that. I might insert a little um, application here. We <coughs> often don't have any idea of the consequences of our sin when we are in the midst of it. It is often after the sin has been committed and time has lapsed that we see the consequences, and many times it affects not just us, but many of those around us. Um So Adam and Eve had no idea. Um, who has Romans five twelve?
1: The whole is by one man sin entered the world, death by sin. So they passed upon all men to all sin.
0: Thank you. Through one man, through Adam, sin entered the world, and from that point on, mankind, born into the world, separated from God. Um, after their sin, if you continue reading in this section of Genesis, um, God curses three individuals. He curses the serpent, he curses uh, the woman Eve, and he curses the man Adam. Um, yet, in the midst of the of this punishment, this immediate like swell of consequences that comes from this very uh, minute, seemingly minute sin, um, Adam and Eve are going to experience some major changes. But even in the midst of this punishment, God—we see God's mercy hand in hand with His judgment throughout Scripture. When God brings judgment, many times He shows mercy at the same time. So, one evidence of God's uh, mercy in the midst of judgment, He pr- He's pronounced His curse on Adam and Eve. They're sent out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, we know the angels are blocking the entrance so that they cannot return. But before He sends them out, He kills animals prepares animal skins to clothe them before they leave the Garden of Eden. So he's taking care of their needs, even in the midst of them you know, committing this one sin, the one thing he told them not to do. They've already done it. Um, but he doesn't want to leave them um, without um, having needs met. So I just think that's amazing that uh, God is not just a God of wrath and judgment. He There's almost always mercy and love in the midst of that punishment. Um, Two other interesting points about the fall of mankind. Um, Some of you may not know this, but um, anyway, Mormonism teaches that what Adam and Eve did in the garden was actually not sin, but a loving, generous act. They chose to forego paradise, ongoing communion with God, so that all of those that would come after them could experience the trials and travails of humanity that's just wrong theology what Adam and Eve did was violate the one command that God gave them and that violation of that command was sin so this was not a loving act this was not you know a oh we're going to let all the world experience what we've experienced this is sin oh and then one other thing Um, I am as you will I'm sure detect as we go along um, consider myself a pretty staunch uh, biblical creationist and very much hold to a young Earth, six day, six literal days of creation, and you'll you'll hear some of that as I give some um, different things to kind of think about as we move through the, especially the first little bit of uh, of our um, journey with Adam and Eve, and then also with Noah. But um, this this whole story of like sin entering into the world and death is uh, a support for biblical creationism. Keep in mind, death was not part of the human experience until after Adam and Eve sinned. So that would not account for millions and millions of years of life forms evolving, uh, living for, you know, a certain number of years, and then dying off as new forms emerged because there was no death of any kind, animal, human, there was no death before sin entered into the world. So you couldn't have animals evolving, dying off, evolving, dying off before man was ever created. So, just kind of scroll that away somewhere. Yes. yes, 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 yes. The Bible also tells us that God
1: knows every hair of our head. and knows everything. Right. Was this a... This was not a
0: surprise to him. No. He did not force their hand. They had a free choice, but it was not a surprise to him. So
1: it was a test. I mean, they were supposed right, to... Right, right. And it
0: makes me sad to think that here he creates them, and he knows full well... That, that one rule is going to be the thing that they violate. It's, it's, you know, and, and not very, I mean, we don't know exactly how long they were in the Garden of Eden before all this took place, but um, it, it seems by the, the account that it probably wasn't all that long into uh, the world's existence, so you're absolutely right. It was not a surprise to the Lord. Um, so, key relationships. Um, the first key relationship is the biblical family. Who performed the first wedding? God, there was no preacher, there was no justice of the peace. God himself performed the first wedding at the first wedding. Genesis 2.24 says, For this reason shall a man leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall be one flesh.
1: No matter what our
0: culture says, no matter what our courts say, God, the creator, the designer of marriage, intended for marriage to be between one man and one woman. This was not just one possible choice or possible option for how a family should look. This was God's pattern, his one pattern, one man, one woman coming together in marriage. So, um, you know, I won't get all political about that, but that's all I'm going to say about that. So God himself created the family. He created the family unit, and marriage was his idea, not our idea. The second key relationship is the creation mandate. And some some folks may think this is a little strange, but you know we've read these passages where the God created the world for man's use. For when I say man, obviously I'm including men and women in there, um, it was created for our use. Um, God told Adam and Eve to subdue the world, that He gave them plants for food. This was for our use, okay? And of course we should be good stewards of the, the creation and the resources that God has given us. But I think nowadays our culture seems to be obsessed with protecting our, the ecosystem of this planet and that we're more concerned about that than the perpetuation of the human race. And we would rather see that plants and animals aren't harmed than human beings aren't harmed. And so the idea is we should be good stewards, especially as children of God but realize that this world was given to us by God for our use. Questions or comments on that? Any questions before we move on? So we did the first slide. Woohoo! Um, so moving on to the next set of individuals, and again, I'm sure this will come as no surprise. Um, the next set of individuals that we encounter are Cain and Abel, or the next set is Cain and Abel, and these are the first two sons of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve did not start their family until after they left the Garden of Eden. They had many, many kids. Uh, the first two were um, Cain and Abel. And we'll find later as we go through that there was, some other, or there was one other especially important son that um, uh, played a key role as we move forward in um, even in Jewish history. But um, Adam and Eve have these two sons. So who has Genesis 4, 1 and 2?
1: Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was the tiller of the ground. Thank
0: you. That last line is very important, obviously, in this story. Abel was a shepherd, and Cain was a farmer. So we have these two sons... And initially, if you read the accounts, and I try to put this up here too, like you'll see Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, if, if you would like to go back and, and do more study on your own, obviously there's a lot more about them in that chapter. But basically, both of these young men wanted to uh, please God. So it wasn't that from the outset Cain was bad and Abel was good. They both desired to have a relationship with the one true God, but sin kind of got in the way. So we have these two sons of Adam and Eve, and we move right into the first key event, or the the key event here, which is the first murder. Who has Genesis 4, 3 through 8? And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will not be. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Thank you. Imagine if you are sitting at your house and you are thinking about something and in your mind, your thoughts turn away from the Lord and you begin having sinful thoughts and plotting sinful actions. Can you imagine God himself saying, Yoo-hoo, Jenny, you you need to stop that right there. I mean, this is an amazing passage. God himself tries to, well, not tries, intervenes and says to Cain, buddy, you are headed the wrong way. Sin is crouching at the door and it's about to master you. Yet Cain completely disregards God's warning, invites his brother out to the field and takes care of him. So I just think it's amazing that God, you know, in in, in this point of history, in histories too, um, you know, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, they communicated directly with the Lord. We, obviously, we don't have that ability, and we'll talk, you know, later on about having the Holy Spirit, but I just think it's, I'm sure there are times when the Lord, through God the Holy Spirit, is saying to us, hey, Jenny, you need to stop what you're doing. But I, how many times do I disregard? But I think if it was an audible voice. It might be a little more impactful. I don't know. i might <laughs> um, be a little more scary. I don't know. So, spiritual death, Death of, um, this, of the soul and the spirit happened began instantaneously when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. One generation, just in their children, we now see physical death, the consequence of sin, physical death entering the world, entering life on earth. Physical death from this point on is now a part of life. So spiritual death, death came first with Adam and Eve and now physical death with Cain and Abel. Later on in this chapter, we read that Cain because of his actions, that there was a punishment. Does anybody know what the punishment for Cain was? God did kill him. What was the punishment? Well, that that was part of it. What was the first part, though? What did he say He he had to hit the road? He was going to be a vagrant and a wanderer the rest of his life. And so the scripture records that he was worried that someone would take his life. Now, who is on the earth at this particular point? Adam and Eve's other kids. So this would be like their siblings. And don't get me started about like how they married but I don't want to go there. But <laughs> anyway, yeah. There's a lot of, you know, sister marrying going on, obviously in the beginning. But you know, the the men and women that are actually on the earth that Cain is afraid of, that's his own family but he was afraid that because of what he had done to Abel and because God sent him away from the protection of the crowd that being a wanderer and a vagrant that he would that someone would take his life so God actually in his mercy puts a mark on him that basically says there will be a punishment a far far worse punishment on anyone who takes Cain's life than on you know than on Cain himself so God spares his life sends him out and we'll read in a couple of weeks or maybe next week even, that he leaves the area and goes east of Eden to the land of Nod. So he's a wanderer, he's cast out, but God does not take his own life. He spares his life, puts the mark on so no one else can take his life. So definitely harsh consequences for taking the life of another human being. So uh, the key relationship here is the triad of evil. And that sounds kind of, I don't know, it just sounds kind of funny to me. Uh, um, sounds like a mastermind, an evil mastermind or something. But um, the idea is introduced here, way back in Genesis, that sin doesn't just happen accidentally. It's not an accident. We don't fall into it. We're, you know, we, we don't need to be surprised by it. It's actually a process, and a process that can be interrupted at any point along the way. Who has James 1, uh, 13 to 15? I'm Let no man
1: say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempted he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death.
0: Thank you. So... James tells us that God does not tempt anyone, and that it, we, we know it is, the, it is Satan who is the author of sin, but because of Adam and Eve's sin, in the Garden of Eden, every man, woman, boy, and, and girl in the world that, con- that was around this time and has ever come into the world, struggles with a sin nature. And the process, basically, that James lays out for us is there's a, um, there's a motive. And James calls that lust, and then there is an act which is James calls sin, and there's a consequence which he mentions is death. Now we we also see in other places we could see all this this process all throughout Scripture. Two that I put on here on your handout and on the slide. T- anybody? Can anybody think of the process that might have been involved with David and Bathsheba? kind of. So what was his? What was the initial part? Lust was the was the uh, uh, motive. And then what did he do? He committed adultery and then he had her husband killed, sent to the front lines so he could be off. And then what was the consequence? Anybody know what the consequence was? The punishment? The death of their firstborn child. Right. So very easy to see that process. Um, and then some of y'all might not know Ananias and Sapphira, um, early church. Um, they uh, said they sold a little track, a little, little land, and we brought all the money we made right here and took it to the, uh, the apostles and said, here you go for the Lord's work. But they didn't give all the money. They held some back. Does anybody know what God did? Right there. Actually, he killed the guy first and then she comes in. I think that's right. Uh, and then she comes in and then you know she gets zapped. So in their case, uh, greed or pride... Was the motive? The act was uh, lying and deceit, and the immediate consequence was death of the two of them. Yeah, they're not messing around with the offering in the early church. But uh, the idea is, the idea is, sin um, it doesn't just happen. Um, it's and I like the idea that God shows us very clearly that He it is His desire to intervene. Um, on our behalf and, and try to stop us from sinning as we move through this process. And so he did it audibly, you know, I think much more obviously uh, for Cain here. But because we have the Holy Spirit, we'll talk a lot more about that as we go through. Um, as believers, because we have the Holy Spirit, we have that same voice, and that same presence trying to restrain us from sin. Any questions about Cain and Abel here? Alrighty, we're going to do one more slide tonight and then, I don't want to wear you out before we even get going here. We're going to talk about Enoch. And Enoch is one of my favorite people and he's kind of a a lesser known guy in the Old Testament. Um, So, Cain and Abel were Adam and Eve's first two kids, but they had a bunch more kids. And as we'll learn later, one of the most notable sons they had after Cain and Abel was Seth. And he will definitely come into play later on. This Enoch was actually from the line of Seth, a couple of generations removed from Adam and Eve. The reason I say that is because Cain, when he was sent away as a vagrant and a wanderer, he actually had a son named Enoch. This is not the same guy. Um, That was Cain's Enoch. This is Enoch from the line of Seth. So um, a little bit farther out, kind of moving through history a little bit. Um, But Enoch was this guy, and we're going to learn what kind of guy he was. Oh, before that, just a little FYI, he was father to Methuselah. Anybody know... Anything special about Methuselah? Yep, yeah, uh, he lived the longest on earth, 969 years. Whew, that's a long time. So, yeah, so he's father to Methuselah and great-grandfather to Noah. So that kind of puts puts him in place in history. You has Genesis five twenty-two to 24? I
1: do. And then it walked God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of for three hundred and sixty-five years, Enoch walked with God, and he was not
0: to Thank you. Now, Enoch was kind of a tragic story because his life was cut short <coughs> at only three hundred and something. Like I was, you know, trying to be funny because like his life was only three hundred. Whatever. Um, he still lived three hundred sixty-plus years, a, a ripe old age. But here is this may be the reason why he didn't live to be as long as his um, son Methuselah. Um, and others who came before and after him, he had such a relationship with God that they're communing, and God says, you know what? I'm taking him up right now, right now. Can you imagine communing with God, talking with God in prayer, one minute, the next minute, well, hello there, Lord, how you doing? I cannot imagine. So the scripture, and I love the way, you know, different translations kind of worded a little differently, but the NIV says he was here, and then he was no more. There you go. I just love that. So key event is translation into heaven. Um, Enoch has this relationship with God, and God decides, for whatever reason, I'm ready to take him up. He does not This is the first man to not experience physical death as a part of life on earth. Um, and so as we get to the key relationships, there's some amazing things about this. Um, it seems like, what's the big deal, Ginny? Just this guy was, you know, he loved the Lord and God decided to bring him home. Big deal. Um, but it's he didn't have to experience death. It was instantaneous. Um, so the key relationship here is basically life and death. The line between life and death is very thin, and God himself controls who lives and who dies. It is God alone that has, that knows the number of our days. And he can decide to take one of his children home at any time, um, in any way, actually. One of the amazing things that I love about um, Enoch and this translation into heaven is it is a foreshadowing of the rapture. When Jesus comes back to take just the church, he meets, we meet him in the clouds. Uh, who has First Thessalonians four seventeen? After that, me who you are
1: still alive and left. You call to go the the Lord
0: so
1: we will be thank you
0: so the same thing if we are still alive when Jesus calls the church home the church of all believers off the earth to meet him in the clouds to go to heaven we will be just like Enoch we will be here one minute and gone the next and uh, way down at the end of our three months, we're going to talk a lot or talk more about the rapture and end times. But this is a foreshadowing. Now, I do have to tell you all a story, and I know, like you know, uh, so last last fall, I would tell stories as we went in, so y'all kind of got to know my little warped sense of humor. But um, you will come to hopefully appreciate it as we go through. But when I was a little kid, um, I accepted Jesus when I was six years old, and I loved the idea of the rapture. But I had a fear. That, that just paralyzed me every night. I was scared to death that Jesus was gonna come back as soon as I got out of the bathtub. And that, uh, you know, as all of God's people, <laughs> All the believers are going up to heaven, here's a little naked jitty going on up, and you know, the ripe old age 10. And so it really doesn't matter, you know, I think the Lord's going to take care of that, but every, I mean, I remember, I remember like it was yesterday, every night I'd get out, please don't go, go really get my PJs on. Um, so, I don't really worry about that anymore, but uh, anyway,
1: yeah.
0: So, I would like to be like Enoch just when I got my clothes on. Uh, and then the last thing, who has Second Kings 2.11? I do. Then it happened as they
1: continued on and called and suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them and
0: elijah went up by a and into heaven. Thank you. I included this because there was one other individual in the Old Testament, Elijah, who also was sort of translated up to heaven. I kind of jokingly say that Elijah was kind of one upper because, you know, Enoch's just was this nice quiet. He was communing with God. Boom, he's not. Elijah's is a little more fanfare and, you know, chariots and fire and all that stuff. But the same idea. Basically, God just whisked him up to heaven rather than having him go through physical death before seeing the Lord. So we're going to stop there, take your notes, and then if you um, you bring a notebook or whatever next time, so we'll start up with the next person, which is Noah, next week. Thank you very much.